Hello, and welcome to Pod Academy. This podcast, Singing the Century, examines the life and times of A.R. Lloyd, folk song collector, singer, writer, broadcaster, and a leading figure in the British folk revival. Camden, 2012, and the choir of Cecil Sharp House are crammed into the basement for an evening of traditional song, their voices well oiled by Jerry the Barman's fine ales. The choir has been around for four years, the building for just over 80, but the sea shanty that reverberates around the walls dates back well into the 19th century. So how is it that this song has survived, to be hollered by this group of landlubber artists, administrators and accountants in an age when mechanisation has made the need to haul on the bowline and weigh anchor all but redundant? The answer lies with a group of determined 20th century men and women who were devoted to the collection and promotion of folk song, often as the communities that had nurtured the tradition for centuries were disintegrating before their eyes. One such devotee can be seen smiling down encouragingly from the gallery of photographs that line the walls of the basement bar. Dressed in a thick woolen jumper, shirt and tie, it would be easy to overlook A.L. Lloyd, or Bert as he was known. However, as a new biography reveals, he was not your average folk enthusiast, nor indeed your average man. Songwriter and journalist Alan Franks met up with the book's author, Dave Arthur, to discuss Bert's remarkable life and his contribution to the folk tradition. So Dave, it was a labour of love, it was 20 years in the making, it's run to over 600 pages, including a huge index. What gave you the idea for this book? Well, I didn't have an idea, it was thrust on me. I just got thrown in, because when Bert died in 82, I had a phone call saying, would I write an obit for the folk music journal and would I do a radio documentary on him? So I started, I dashed around with my tape recorder and did interviews. And of course, the people I was interviewing were in their, many of them in their 80s, 90s, and who'd worked with Bert in the 30s. So I ended up with this massive tapes and a lot of people that were no longer around. So mm-hmm. I felt duty-bound then to, um, to do something with it. It was, it was a, a lot of interesting stuff. And I was fan- The more I got into it, the more fascinated I became. It was such a many-faceted life that I imagine that when you first got in touch with those people and heard their testimonies, that it must have been pulling like the ends of little cords, ends of bits of rope, and you didn't really know where they were oh, absolutely going not. to go. Were you surprised by the directions in which this research took you? Absolutely, because Bert, in later life, when I knew him in the sort of 60s, um, 70s, he was very reticent about his early... He never mentioned his early life. I mean, so none of us on the folk scene at that time knew that he'd been a, you know, a wonderful radio writer. None of us knew about his work as a translator of, you know, of Lorca, of Kafka... None of us knew about his work with the Communist Party of Great Britain, his Marxism, his, all the stuff he was involved in, the people he knew in London, in the left-wing literary scene, artistic scene. He was an absolute central part of it. And this, none, of it, none of it came out. And then suddenly I was finding all these people. That's Oh, yeah, but this Bert was that. Oh, my God. I sure it bar a bogey, and I sure it token man. I sure it big will and out on the colder rain. But before the shearing was over, I wished I was back again, sharing for old Tom Patterson on the one tree plane. 
Burt was born into a working-class family in Tooting, South London, in 1908. By the age of 16, however, he was on the other side of the world, working as a farmhand on the vast open plains of the Australian outback. So let's try and make a little chronological sense of his life. How did he come to be in Australia? His mother died and his, his, one of his sisters had died, his baby brother had died, and the, uh, his father had come back from the First World War and had been injured and then sent back again. He was back in England at hospital and he went back out and came back. Uh, it wrecked him as, as a man. He was physically wrecked. And he didn't feel that he could look after Bert. So the British Legion um, sponsored Bert's trip on one of these schemes. I mean, there were many, many schemes to send young people out to, the, to Canada, to Australia, New Zealand. But the Empire needed young people. So that's how, he, that's how he, basically how he got there. He left his grammar school in North London, Hornsey, uh, and ended up in a farm a few miles outside Sydney. So he went out as a young 16-year-old, but obviously a very bright 16-year-old. Uh, who was only just discovering the world. And if he'd have been in England, if he'd have gone to university, he would have had other people of his own age to discuss art, literature, politics with, all these things that, of course, in Australia he didn't have. So he, what he tended to do was to educate himself from the public libraries out there. He would get books sent out to the sheep stations and read them and you know, voraciously. And yet in his own daily working life, kind of living what is what was subsequently called sometimes as uh, attending the university of life. Absolutely. And yeah, learning yeah. a lot. One of the things he learned, I suppose, which must have tipped into his fascination with folk song, was, was the, the fact that he was there surrounded by people which had in, in common with their English working counterparts, that they were chronicling their lives in song. When he first gone out to Australia, classical music was more his thing, wasn't it? Oh, much more, yes. He was, well, again, he was discovering it. He, didn't, he yeah. knew little about it, but he, he applied so again to the library, the Sydney uh, Lending Library, and they sent stuff out. They had this scheme to send stuff out to bush workers, and you would get a box of 78s would turn up of Mozart, of Bach, or whatever. Uh, and then he had a wind-up gramophone, and he had a little shed that he lived in on the, on the, very, on the, the last farm he was at, and he would sit um, at night with a lantern lit and sit out on the stone outside in the yard, in the, the horse yard, with bark pouring out of the doors of his little hut. And he was, initially, he wasn't, he wasn't very interested in, in Australian working-class mm. culture, and he was mm. quite scathing about some of the things he said about... Indeed, he was. ...about, work, about the, the life. He went to a, a country fair, and, you know, he was criticising the, the scraping of the fiddle and the squeezing yes. of the concertina. You know, he, he hadn't discovered it. He was still... Yes. He still his idea of culture was classical music, literature, art. Of course, all the art thing. He was very interested in contemporary art. It uh, shows you that the breadth of the man already... Now, many people... I don't want to trade in stereotypes, but many people who are uh, knowledgeable admirers of classical music simply haven't got the time for the simplicities of folk music. What was it, do you think, that was appealing to Bert... Uh, at that age already about well, the form. Yes, I don't. I said I don't. I don't think much of it did appeal to him until later on, perhaps before mm. he left. Was he? Although he always said that he sat when he sat round in the evening with the men having their meal, they would sometimes you know, just swap songs, go around the table, yeah. and this way he heard shearing songs, he heard ballads and things. Um, but I don't think it was his a great idea. I think it became. It really came out of his politics because when you worked on the big sheep stations, at some point you joined the agricultural union, the workers' unions, uh, and so he became not, not radicalised so much, but aware of the difference between bosses and and workers. The fact that these the, you know, the big sheep stations owned by men with a lot of money, a lot of workers didn't have much money, and they worked very hard for for what they did get. Um, so he was, I think, he became aware of politics at that point when he was in his 19, 18, 19, 20. Then he came back to England. 
uh, and then fell straight into the the whole left wing uh, communist Marxist uh, situation in London. In 1930, Bert returned to London and a hotbed of communist activity. With the intimate cafes of Parsons Street providing the backdrop and its bookshop supplying a steady flow of left-wing literature, this small area of Soho became a magnet towards which gravitated poets, novelists, artists, journalists and students, all keen to discuss the latest political ideas and the possibility of revolution. Bert was no exception and he became a lifelong devotee of communism as a result. So yes, back in London, and it's uh, Fitzrovia, a time of great left-wing activity. It seems to me, Dave, that up to this point in his life, that his view of politics is lived in rather than book learnt. Was that the case? Oh yeah, I think it's, it's through experience. I think and in the in Australia, he he mm. he learnt the the basic politics. Of course, it was the time of the depression in Australia as well. Yeah. And then when he got back to London, of course, there were three million in the th early thirties, three million unemployed. Mm. Uh, and the Daily Worker had just started, and he was um, he met Leslie Morton and Alan Hutt and a group of sort of communists, Marxist communists, and then got involved in the politics, communist politics in this in North London, where they would go, they would do street work, they'd go around and interview people and, and do get petitions up, they'd write articles mm -hmm. on um, the poor con the conditions of living conditions of working class people. I think that he was thrown in at the deep end when he got back. Then it was right in the middle of the depression, and there was you know, the Jarrow marches were coming down a few a couple of years later. Uh, there's huge, huge turmoil and, and enormous poverty. People dying of starvation. I mean, it really were. So this was this was what he found when he got back, and they, mm. that really radicalised him, and he became very much aware. And it was a time when supposedly moderate, I use that word in, in, in quotes, moderate men and women were more than happy to think in terms of the possibility of a revolution. Well, the thing is, you know, it seems, I mean, when you go through... The, all the, the work at that, that period, the, the artistic work, had to be 90% seemed to be were left wing. So there were very few uh, right, mm -hmm. right wing writers mm -hmm. that were around because it was, you know, they, they, could, they could see you know, the, the poverty and, and the disparity in, in, in society. And they, they tried to, to do something about it, which is why they formed the Internet Artist International Association, which is a revolutionary to promote revolutionary art. Um, the Workers' Music Association was started in 1936. Alan Bush started that to, to present working class music as opposed to popular you know, uh, classical music fed down to the workers. This was workers' music for themselves and for the outside world. And as we'll see from Bert's own life, that mission of exposing the music to fresh audiences became, in a way, his life's work. Ultimately, yeah. Well, he's, he, I think what it was, uh, because at that time, Bert was capable of doing almost anything. But, you know, he was, a, he was a painter. He came back from mm. Australia. He'd painted in Australia. Uh, he sold some paintings when he got back here. Uh, he was uh, a poet. He, was, he wrote poetry in Australia. He translated works. He was a linguist. He could, he could speak then a couple of, at least a couple of two or three languages. He was to speak German and French definitely. And later on, he added many more. So all these things he could do. And but but there were everybody else could as well. I mean, you know, all the pubs in Fitzrovia and up you know, around the Soho were full of artists, painters, poets, writers, designers who, at the drop of a hat, would read you their latest poem. Uh, Dylan mm -hmm. Thomas was a great friend of his. Mm -hmm. um, so all these people. So Bert didn't have. Any 
anything. He had all he could do all these things to a certain degree. So he was looking. I always felt for something that was his, a niche that was because he could actually be that you know, the one-eyed man in the in the country of the blind, and and he found it in folk music. Our fingertops were frozen off, and likewise our toenails as we crawled on the deck. Me boys looking out for the Greenland whale, looking out for the Greenland whale. As well as contributing to the Left Review and various Communist Party publications, Bert also began writing scripts for BBC radio documentaries. His first piece, Voice of the Seamen, was inspired by a six-month whaling trip to the Antarctic, which he embarked on in 1937. The frozen, gruesome, blubber-covered decks of the steel whaler were a far cry from the cafes, pubs and living rooms of Soho and Fitzrovia, where Bert and his friends plotted the revolution over a mug of Meg's tea or a pint of Beth Bitter. And when our money is all gone to Greenland, go for more, brave boys, to Greenland, go for more. In the late 30s, he meets a whole lot of whales uh, in the ocean. What took him on that particular trip? Well, he always said that he was... Again, this is one of those areas where he was a bit reticent in later life as to how he got there, but... What happened was he came back from Australia. He got a job working for Foils. He was Foils' foreign book manager. Christine employed him, and she she liked him very much. They were great friends. Uh, and then next next thing he pops up is him going whaling. And in Bert's version of the story, he was broke throughout the thirties and spent his time trudging between the um, signing on the dole and the British Museum, where he educated himself in folk music. He read a lot of uh, collections of ballads and, and studied broadsides and this sort of thing. Uh, and then we got to the point where he needed the money. He was broke and he signed on a whaling trip. But, you know, what I don't know. I mean, as far as I know, he was working at Foils uh, and was doing reasonably OK. And he went, he did definitely went whaling. He, he signed mm. on. Mm. But there's a, a letter appeared in Australia a few years ago saying that, in fact, he was working at the time for Unilever. And the, the story was another guy in their art department said that Burr was a copywriter for Unilever and went on the, on the trip as a copywriter to, uh, to, you know, to write stuff about the, for the company. So we don't know. It still worked. I mean, there's no mm. doubt. He, he worked as a labourer on the ship. I mean, I've got his diaries. I've read his diaries. There's no mm. doubt about it. And his descriptions are, are vivid and gruesome and uh, visceral, oh, yes, is yeah, the only word, yes, with yeah, bits, of, yeah. bits of whale. Well, because he, he thought it was fascinating. It's a cinema, cinematographic yes. uh, and exotic. It was, you know, he was always had this eye, incredible eye and ear for ideas, for stories. Mm. Even back then, I think, he was mm -hmm. constantly you know, locking things away to use at a future date. And yes. he saw the beauty yeah. in, in in a whaling ship, in a, uh, of the, you know, the, which most people nowadays think is actually unbelievably gruesome. But there is a beauty in in, in that sort of thing as well, in mm. the, the the snow, the the mist, the blood, the bones, and it's, it's, it's a, I think mm. choreographic thing of mm. Whaleman working on these enormous, you know, the sperm were the size of twenty elephants, dragged up onto the, the deck, the flensing deck, and then these guys in black boots and spike boots with flensing knives climbing over the bodies and slicing the whales. Mm. So I mean, there is a, an incredibly visual picture, whether however gruesome it might be. It's just a, a you, know, you can't it's, what's in your head, you can't forget it. And of course, he became a Shantyman himself in the film of Moby Dick, didn't he? He got the job, yes, um, when John Huston was making the film of Moby Dick. Uh, Bert got the job of uh, Shantyman on the the Pequod. And he, um, he had to grow a beard for it and wear an eye patch. And there's just well, there's only one shot of him at the beginning of the film, mm -hmm. looking peering through the rigging, singing Blood Red Roses, oh, which yes. is a great song. It's a fabulous yes, song. He does yes, a great job yes. of it. 
gentlemen, please. We're now going to have a song from Mr. A. Cook, the Blackbird, if you don't mind, ladies and gentlemen. Burke continued to write for radio and in 1939 was commissioned by the BBC to co-write and produce an ambitious documentary series called The Shadow of the Swastika. Charting the history of the Nazi party, the series attracted 12 million listeners, making Burke one of the best-known writers in Britain at the time. It was the production of another, less high-profile programme, however, that had an ultimately greater impact upon the direction of Burke's life. Saturday Night at the Eel's Foot, recorded in 1939, captured an evening of traditional song and extraordinary characters at the Eel's Foot Inn in Eastbridge, Suffolk. Very soon after that, we come to a, an important part of his broadcasting life when he was responsible for recording the famous Eel's Foot sessions down in the Suffolk pub of that name. Can you tell us a little bit about what those sessions were and how come? Yeah, well, he, he, came what, to well be there? The, he got when he finished. He came back from the whaling trip, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, the, the winter season. He was back in England in thirty-eight and wanted to be a writer. He, he, even when he was in Australia, he'd wanted, he realised that writing was a thing that really interested him. Uh, and he'd written some things for um, Left Review, uh, that sort of thing, but he wanted to get into radio. And he heard a, a, a radio documentary on unemployment in America uh, that came out of the Columbia Radio Workshop. And it was like a, an experimental workshop where they, they used music, sound effects, and all sorts of things. And Bert thought this was a great idea mm -hmm. and he wrote to the BBC and said I've just come back I've been at sea and I'd like to do a documentary similar to the one I heard the other day um, on the life of an ordinary seaman would you be interested and as it happened they, it was an idea that uh, Lawrence Gilliam had actually thought of He'd like, he was interested in the idea of, of about life at sea for ordinary sailors and he got Bert in and, um, and it was so good that they, and they, uh -huh. they, they gave him a job at the BBC as a, a writer, producer or writer. And then he set about, um, did various programmes for, for them, wrote programmes. And then he went up to Suffolk to visit um, Leslie Morton, his, his old Marxist friend from North London, who then had moved to North to Suffolk. Um, and they, uh, on Saturday nights, Leslie used to go down to the local pub, which was the Eelsfoot, where they were singing. And he took Bert along and said, look, you know, you, you'll enjoy this. Every Saturday night, all the, the fishermen come in and the, the country, the farm labourers, and they sing songs, folk songs. So Bert went along and, and couldn't believe his luck. There was all this, this music that he'd, he'd been reading, he had been reading about in the British Museum. And he'd read Cecil Sharp's collection. Mm. He'd read been through, he knew what was going, what the folk songs were. But he'd never come across them live. Mm. He thought they died. I mean, he, he thought there was a, a thing of the past. And suddenly there were people on a Saturday night singing these songs that had been around for two, three hundred years, four hundred years, five hundred years, some of them, the roots of them. Mm. And it was a living, a living thing. And he, he couldn't believe it. So he then went back to the Beeb and said, look, you know, I must go, we must record this, uh, this session at the Eelsfoot. And they came down with one of the very first portable recordings units, a van set up with a, a, a portable a machine in it, run off on batteries from the, from the car, from the van, and they recorded the uh, session at the, at the Eel's Foot, which was really the first really recording of traditional uh, performers live. People who, people who study it, who studied folk music history in this country say that that was one of the crucial moments where stuff that could have been uh, sent the way of extinction got uh, resurrected and went on to be very, very influential in its own right uh, in terms of what happened subsequently to folk song. Oh, yeah, of course. Now it's been reissued on CDs. And a lot of the, the, the nice thing is that contemporary young singers 
now in in 2012 mm-hmm. are listening to these 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 guys that have been dead for the last 50 years yes. and are learning from them and yes. I, I mean that's the thing that Bert did yes. he, he preserved this he saved this yeah. uh, for us you know for future generations to hear and if he hadn't have done it then then those six ten singers in that pub that night mm-hmm. would have got we'd never know we'd known about them obviously but we'd never have, never able to hear them but now you you've got a window into this mm-hmm. culture which Absolutely. hadn't changed for hundreds of years uh, and Bert captured that moment and this is what Bert was his whole passion was that ordinary people can create wonderful things. Ah, oh. a late request for another ballad. Ballad of Tamlin, Young Tambling. Lady Margaret, Lady Margaret sat so in a seam and she was all dressed in black. When a thought come in her head, she'd rotten in the wood to pull flowers to flower her hat, my boy. To pull flowers, to flower a hat. As war came and went and the 40s rolled on, Burke grew ever more determined to further the cause of English traditional music. He began performing songs publicly and took to examining the tradition from a more academic angle, as well as becoming involved with the English Folk Dance and Song Society based at Cecil Sharp House in Camden, London. Young man, and he was standing by a tree. He says, how dare you pull them branches down? Without the leave of me, young lady, without the leave of me. By the time we're in the 1940s, post-war, he begins performing in his own right, singing songs in folk clubs. How good a singer was he? Well, technically, I don't think he was... He was he, well, again, it's, it depends on what you're, what you're using as a, a benchmark. But he wasn't a technical singer in the way that we would assume a classical singer is to, you know, today. Um, but he had um, a lot of... He listened to a lot of traditional music. By the time he started singing in the late 40s, and actually put himself out publicly, um, he had listened to traditional... Th- and, of course, a lot of things that traditional musicians do, like decoration and slides and these sort of things that, um, that are very folk... Uh, stars of doing things they're not not classical things at all no. and he he could and he could do these he had a great i think it's a good technique of of the you know, at the time probably the only one of the few people that could do it was the folk revival in the early days had no idea about anything really i mean they were they were just chunking away on guitars yeah. and things and singing away and Burr was one of the few people that really listened to and had studied um, how to sing, how traditional performers put things across. But I think Bert's main skill for me um, is that he could tell a story. And you know, folk songs are narratives, and they're all stories. And unless you hear the words and you can connect with them, then they, they're meaningless. But Bert could, he, whatever song he picked, you knew exactly what he'd sung. You knew what he was getting and what was happening in the song. You were somehow affected by it, particularly ballads, long ballads. He would sing you know, like 10, 15, 20 verse, 30 verse ballads. And you, you were hung on every word. People would sit on the edge of their seats waiting for the, for the story to unfold. And that was for me, that, that's how I always think of him as a... As a performer, yes, yes, and someone who who had um, uh, the, the air of a, of a teacher, of a benign teacher, mm-hmm. whose interest and um, obsession sometimes was to was to impart knowledge that he had. Presumably, oh, this yes, was... He, he was he was always very much a teacher. He would he would I mean, everybody I've spoken to um, said that he would at the drop of a hat. He, because his head was full of stuff. He, he knew so many, he had so much in his head and he couldn't wait to share it and he would impart it to you know, anybody. And some people, of course, got a bit fed up with it because they, they felt they were being preached at, mm-hmm. which I don't think was his motive at all. He just, he just won, he was enthusiastic and if somebody asked a question, he would go off for 10 minutes. Oh, boys, can't you line them? Oh, boys, can't you line them?
By the 1950s, the proponents of the folk revival faced a new threat. The American imported skiffle craze spread like wildfire and captured the imagination of England's youth. Whereas traditional music may have seemed irrelevant to young people, or an unattractive reminder of the harsh toil of their ancestors, the bluesy, toe-tappingly pacey nature of skiffle offered them a relief from post-war drudgery. Despite this, Burt pressed on and teamed up with the rather fiery Ewan McColl in an attempt to nurture and promote English folk song. You were of the skiffle generation and this very rhythm, rhythmic yeah. um, three-chord, largely three-chord music was coming over from America via uh, Lonnie Donegan and uh, Chris Barbagia's band and so forth. And eventually, although one wasn't, I don't think, aware of it at the time, eventually the combination of those things, this, this rhythmic, uh, very basic pop music on the one hand, and the legacy of the other music, the folk songs that we've been talking about, led to a very important movement, didn't it, of the of the of, uh, folk rock? Oh, the fo oh, yeah, the folk revival. Pete Seeger and the Almanac singers in the States in the 40s produced two or three albums of left-wing uh, Labour songs, union songs, and songs tr um, mainly put to traditional tunes that they'd, they'd written amongst themselves, the Almanacs had written, and they were sung to, to popular sort of like Appalachian tunes, many of them, and they're very catchy. And they came and Bert heard these albums in the late 40s, 40s and was absolutely blown away by them and him and a guy called John Hastin they used to meet up um, in London and they have a coffee together and they decided that there ought to be a movement in England to do the same thing political songs in a popular way to, to take politics into to the people mm. so they, they started a group called the Ramblers which mm. was a, the, one of the first folk groups right. and but Bert always included amongst this American stuff which they were doing he always included some English songs that he'd, he'd heard back in you know, from the Eelsfoot days uh, and that really started off the, the whole sort of folk revival. And then McColl, they met you and McColl, and McColl had a similar idea to, for, to people's music. And the skiffle era came at the, in 1950, in the early 50s. The young people in England were making their own music, uh, and Bert realised that there was, there was something here that could, could actually catch on and be used. But he realised that it was American culture was swamping uh, British culture, mm. and he thought it was time to do something about it. So they, uh, he worked his way through the skiffle era and skiffle songs, which were basically American blues and country songs um, and started going turning up at clubs and singing English songs he'd get up in a, a skiffle club in London and say I'm going to sing three love songs English love songs and people go oh yeah and yawn and then he'd just do three wonderful songs and they go crikey this is mm. this is good stuff you're mentioning of course Ewan McCall who was another towering figure in uh, in folk music a different figure from Bert, in a way, someone who perhaps penetrated the public consciousness even more, partly by marrying a, a, a daughter of the um, the American Seeger dynasty in the form of Peggy Seeger, also by being an unexpectedly, sensationally successful songwriter with the first time I oh, ever yes, saw your face. Dirty Old Town, Manchester Rambler, yeah. many, many more. But he was a difficult and controversial man with whom Bert, tolerant though he was, did not always see eye to eye. No, they, well, they, they both started off with, with this similar idea. They wanted to create a movement. But you're right, they, they were quite different. There was, they were described once as Bert was more the stiletto man 
and McColl was the bludgeon. And that, that was how it was. But Bert was much more subtle. And he would, he would get things done by implication, by giving you stuff, uh, rather than telling you. Whereas McColl was very dogmatic. This, it has to be done this way. This is the only way to do it. And I'm right. And you're wrong. And if you're wrong, you're out. And it was that sort of, you know, the, the, the two opposites. Extraordinary were... ironic, wasn't it, that the music of the people should be subject to such dogma by an individual. Oh, yeah. Or by, by everybody. I mean, mm. it's, it always has been. Yes, you know, well... Uh, I mean, not just not by Bert as well. I mean, to be honest, what was going on? Ordinary people, folk, the, the people at the Eelsfoot, they were quite exceptional in some ways, and the Copper family in yes, the Sussex were exceptional. But the majority of ordinary people sang a mixture of songs. They sang what we would now call folk songs, mm. we recognise as a folk mm. song. They would sing church songs, they would sing popular songs, they would sing Coming to the Garden Moor, yes. my mum sang yes. to me. There's this mixture of things. But what the folk revival did, and what, going back to Cecil Sharp's days in the early turn of the century, uh, the 1900s was to be selective mm. and Bert was just as, as guilty of that as anybody else it was a very specific thing they were picking on which suited their politics of course in, in Bert's and McCall's case um, of course they were picking on the ordinary pe- working class culture uh, a particular aspect of it mm. but the, the whole folk revival in that in that, case, that sense was built on a, a myth actually it, it never represented popular culture in the, in the wider sense. It was always a very specific yes. idea of Bert and McColl's yes. and uh, people of that ilk. It was not just English traditional music that Bert was interested in, however. By 1956, he had clocked up many thousands of miles on foreign trips, including visits to Norway, Spain, France, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria. Come the 1950s, he was travelling again, not for the Australian outback or for the Wales of Antarctica, but for musical purposes. He went to um, Eastern Europe, became fascinated by the music there. Yeah, well, the reason he did that, actually, was um, financial. Because he sat Again. down when he mm. lost, he was he lost his job at Picture Post as a reporter because he a journalist because of because of his communism, uh, and he had to think of a, a new career. And he worked out that he could go to Eastern Europe. He had a lot of connections through the Communist Party uh, in Bulgaria, Romania, places like this, Hungary. Uh, he would go out there. He had access to it, and he could do as much collecting. He could hear as much music in in a month in Bulgaria as you would take him like six months or a year in England mm. to do the same amount of collecting. There was a huge Huge culture of traditional music, with most of it propped up by the you know, communist government and, and also managed by them to many to much extent. But he was he could get access to it, and this is why he could bring it back. He could then make programs for the BBC. He could do albums of Albanian music, of Romanian folk songs to the dead. These sort of programs he was doing at the time. So it was a financially it was very worth his while to go to Eastern Europe. But what he was of course he was advi- at that time there was no real interest. Um, and nowadays, because world music, everybody would if his, he was doing the programs now that he was doing then, they'd be unbelievably popular. Because they, but then there was a very small audience for them. But he was actually again years ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. He realised the value of, of what was going on in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very few other people did until until the last ten years, when suddenly everybody's world music has become the the, the, the thing. She not pulled a double rose. Tamlin says, Lady, pull no more. 
In a large part due to the hard work of the revivalists such as Burt, traditional songs were taken up by a fervent minority of young people in the 1960s and 70s. The likes of bands such as Fairport Convention and Steel Ice Band introduced electric guitars and rasping fiddles to the once unaccompanied music and, in doing so, opened the eyes and ears of a wider audience. He lived long enough to see his influence being extended by the um, uh, the folk rock bands and uh, became, unlike Ewan McCall, became uh, very interested in uh, Bob Dylan and his contemporaries. In yeah. The, oh, well, see, again, McCall couldn't see... Electric folk was anathema yeah. to McCall. It was like, you know, the, the heavens had fallen in. But Bert was much more... Uh, pragmatic about it. He, you know, if, if, he always said that it depends on, it's not the instrument, the fact it's an electric guitar or a fiddle or a concertina or it doesn't matter what it is, it's what you do with it and what, you, what you're trying to do is not the, the fact that it's electric guitar it doesn't make a difference, it's still folk music. He was very supportive of Fairport, mainly because, well not mainly, but partly because Sandy Denny of was one of his favourite singers and Dave Swarbrick was one of his favourite accompanists, uh, they both in the band. Uh, but he felt that uh, electric music and electronic music, which he'd also been involved in earlier, a few good few years earlier could give an extra um, dimension to folk music you could mm. sing a ballad like Tamlin the magical ballad mm. and then at the end of it which Fairport did they then went into this, this long instrumental which created amazing atmosphere mm. which is impossible to do on mm. acoustic instruments so he was very supportive of the idea of experimenting within you know, if you understood what you were doing mm. and did it with taste indeed one last question what would he best be remembered for um, it depends on various people. I mean, I think by people that knew him for his generosity. That's, I mean, everybody that's ever been in touch with him said that he was just incredibly generous with his time, his knowledge. He would, you know, he would spend hours writing stuff out for you. If you gave him a query, you'd get six pages back that he must have taken him an hour, two hours to do. And he had a great sense of humour as well, very funny. And again, a lot of people don't realise that, but and don't mention it. But Norma Waterson of the Waterson family said that her memory of Bert was his, his, his sense of humour. He was a very, very funny man. We were saying earlier that it was one of those lives that he didn't live so much as got lived by it. Is that your view, that his life led him? I think, yes, I think he just, well, he followed... Um, where it and went. Well, he, he, not, he, he did follow where, where it led, but also he, he instigated a lot of things. He, was, he had a lot of visions, and he would actually, I mean, he wrote a lot of things to the BBC, asking, you know, suggesting programmes. He, he had the idea of the folk revival of this thing. He was very in, in, involved in um, industrial folk song. So out of that, out of Bert's work, you've got the, the whole industrial folk revival in England, in Britain, and the research has gone on since then, and collecting and things. You've got electric folk, the use in so many bands now use things that came from Burt, like Frank Zappa was a great Burt fan. So he's had influence in the, in the pop world to a certain extent. People who are now listening to world music are now going back to his early recordings and hearing this wonderful Eastern European music that he mm. recorded in the, in the 50s. Um, so he did, he had a lot of influence on all sorts of people, he did. Century was produced by Alex Bingham for Pod Academy. For further information, visit www.podacademy.org.